Greetings come before you, and thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for those that are here. I ask you to be with Mark as he's not feeling well, and Loretta, and that you'll just be with us as we study in your son's name. Amen. Numbers 33. Uh, we've been talking about the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manassas having to go into the promised land and fight and send their fighters. And now we're going to go into, again, another set of history over their travel. Verse 1. These are the journeys of the children of Israel which went forth out of the land of Egypt with their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And Moses wrote their goings out according to their journey by the commandment of the Lord, and these were their journeys according to their goings out. And they departed from Ramses in the first month, on the fifteenth day of the first month, on the morrow after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with a high hand in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians buried all their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten among them. Upon their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. We're going all the way back into Exodus on this at this point. And, we're, and he's saying they left from the city of Ramses, which is up toward Goshen. And it says here that all of the Egyptians saw them. Now that doesn't mean every single Egyptian, but they left openly. They didn't sneak out. They didn't. They didn't kind of hide their going out. They left in almost a parade, three and a half million of them marching out. Weren't they told to get out? Well, they were told to get out, but that's by, by the, the Pharaoh, finally, after he, after he said, yes, you can go, and then no, you can't go, and then yes, you can go, and no, you can't go. And, but it's saying here that they left with a high hand in the sight of all the Egyptians. In other words, it wasn't in secret. They didn't, you know, so that, and the point is with the people saying, God sent us out, and we left openly. We didn't sneak out. Because you've got to remember, we, they were slaves in Egypt. So I'm sure the rumors were that they had snuck out, and that's why the Egyptians chased after them and got drowned in the Red Sea and all of that. So, but here they are, and it says, For the Egyptians buried their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten, and then it says, upon their gods also the Lord executed judgment. Now, if you remember way back when we were studying Exodus, we talked about how the ten plagues really was a display of the power of God against the gods of Egypt. And on each of the plagues, we listed the different Egyptian gods that were being judged and shown that they were inferior to, to God. And so, and here's just a place, many, one of the many places where it says just that, that the ten plagues were a display of battle against the gods of Egypt. So we're going to look at this, and, and then we're going to go into the long list of towns and places that they, that they visited. The children of Israel were removed from Ramses and pitched in Succoth, and they departed from Succoth and pitched in Etham, and, uh, which is at the edge of the wilderness, and they removed from Ithan and turned into Pilhah-Hiroth, which is before Baal-Zephon, and they pitched before Migdal, and they departed from before Pihath-Eroth and passed through the midst of the, Red sea, uh, the sea into the wilderness and went three days' journey into the wilderness of Ithan and pitched in Mara. Okay, so here's the first four places that they, that they went to. And if you read Exodus 12, 13, and 14, they list those cities in there. They left from Ramses and stopped at Succoth, 
and then they went to all these to these other places, and then they crossed the Red Sea. And three days in, they, they, they stopped at Mara. And what happened at Mara? Does anybody remember what happened at Mara? Yeah. He threw the, uh, the wood into the, and made the water sweet. The water was bitter, and that's what Mara means, bitter. They were complaining. He threw the wood into the, into the, into the water, and it turned sweet. And what did we say the wood represents? Does anybody remember? Life. The cross. The tree, the cross, the wood. Okay. The cross brought into our bitterness brings sweetness. So, all right. Verse 9. And they removed from Mara and came to Elim, and from Elim were 12 fountains of water and, and 70 palm trees, and they pitched there. And they removed from Elam and encamped in, by the Red Sea, and they removed from the Red Sea and encamped in the wilderness of Sin. And they took their journey from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dathka. And they departed from Dathka and camped at Alash. And they removed from Alash and encamped in Rephidim, for there was no water for the people to drink. Rephidim, the big event there, was the water from the rock. And from, they departed from Rephidim and pitched in the wilderness of Sinai. So and what happened to Sinai? Anybody remember how long they spent in Sinai? 40 days. No, that was how long Moses was up on the mountain, the first time and the second time. Remember, they're going to spend all, a little old, just a over year. a year at Sinai. Okay, this is where they're going to be told to how to build the temple and the altars, and they're going to collect. They're going to make the collection for the for the materials to build the collection uh, to build the tabernacle, and they had to and. Remember, there was something special about that collection. What, what happened during that collection that was unusual only happened on two other occasions? Two of the sons were killed when they, on the first day. That was the first day that they did that. But on the collection itself, they were, Moses, the, the people that were making things went to Moses and said, tell the people to quit giving. They've given too much. The only other time that that happened was during Solomon's day, and they had to tell the people, Quit giving, you've given too much. Now, every church would love to have to be able to tell their people, stop giving, we can't spend all the money that you've given. Uh, but it's happened a couple of times there. Okay, and they removed from the desert of Sinai and pitched in Kibroth Hataava, and they departed from Kibroth Hataava and encamped at Hazeroth, and they departed from Hazeroth and pitched into Rithmah, Ma, and they departed from Rich, with Ma and pitched in Rimman Perez, and they departed from Rimman Perez and pitched in Libna, and they removed from Libna and pitched in Risha, and they journeyed from Risha and, and pitched in Kihatha, and they went from Kihatha and pitched in in the Mount of Safar, and they removed from the Mount of Safar and encamped in Hadada. And they removed from Ha'adah and pitched in Machiloth. And they removed from Machiloth and pitched in Tihath. And they departed from Tahath and pitched in Tirah. And they removed from Tirah and pitched in Mithkah. And they went from Mithkah and pitched in Hashmonah. And they departed from Hashmonah and camped in Moserah. And they departed from Moserah and pitched in ben Bene Yaakan, 
and they removed from Bene Yahakan and encamped in Horha Gidgad, and they went from Horha Gidgad and pitched in Jatvatha, and they removed from Jatvatha and encamped in Ebothna, and they departed from Ebothna and encamped in Ezion Gabber, and they removed from Ezion Gabber and pitched in the wilderness of Zin, which is in Kadesh. And they removed from Kadesh and, and pitched in the Mount Hor in the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron the priest went up in the Mount Hor at the commandment of the Lord and died there in the fortieth year after the children of Israel were come up out of the land of Egypt in the first day of the month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died in Mount Hor. Okay. Hopefully some of these names will ring some bells. There's different events that happened in each one of these. Uh, right now, Aaron has gone up to Mount Hor, and that's where he died. And it, he was told that he was not going to go to the Promised Land, just as Moses is told he's not going to go to the Promised Land. And he goes up and dies. It says he's 123 years old. And he's slightly older than, than Moses. Moses is only going to live to be 120, give or, give or take a year. His, his life is pretty easily broken down if you know the life of Moses. He spent... 40 years in Egypt being, being groomed to be a leader. He spent 40 years on the backside of the desert tending sheep. Then he spent 40 years leading the children of Israel in the wilderness. Okay? So his, his life breaks down to three 40-year increments. So it makes it real easy to, to tell his life, you know, know his life history. And King Arad, the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south of the land of Canaan, heard the heard of the coming of the children of Israel. And they departed from Mount Hor and pitched in Zarmonah. And they departed from Zarmonah and pitched in Punan. And they departed from Punan and pitched in Obath. And they departed from Obath and pitched in Ish-Ab Arim, on the border of Moab. And they departed from Eim and pitched in Dibangad. And they moved from Dibangad and camped in Alman Diblatha in and they departed, and they removed from Amman Dibrathaim, and pitched in the mountains of Ab-Arim before Nebo. <coughs> there they departed from the mountains of Ab-Arim, and pitched in the plains of Moab by the Jordan near Jericho. And they pitched by Jericho from beth Jeemoth even unto Abel-Shithin in the plains of Moab. Okay, so they're outside of Moab. Remember, they had the big battle against Moab. They defeated Moab, and they're now outside of Jericho. Okay, and I bring this up because we're not done with the book of Numbers, but they're outside of Jericho at this point. And we've got the whole book of De Deuteronomy to go. And when we get to Deuteronomy, we're going to find out that that's just one, one message that, er that Moses preaches to the people reminding them of everything that God has done for them in the last three books. <laughs> okay? So right now we've got them. They're at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. The old generation has passed out. Uh, pa passed out. Passed away. <laughs> uh, yeah, they just passed out in the desert. They just left them there. Uh, they passed away. Uh, Aaron is gone. Miriam is gone. Moses is going to be gone before they go in. And 
jo uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb are going to be leading them into the promised land. And so we're setting this up. God's, getting, God's putting in the final instructions to them. Verse 51, speak to the, and the, oh, first, and the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab and Jordan near Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, When you are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all of their pictures and destroy all of their molten images and quite pluck down all of their high places. Okay, here is their instruction when they go in. They're to drive out all the inhabitants. In other words, kill them, destroy them. That's what God's telling them. Kill all the residents of the land and the promised land. Canaan, the Jebusites, the, and all those other ites that are living there. And you know, people will say, well, that's cruel, that's mean, that's, that's terrible. They had the message 430 years ago er, uh, uh, earlier to follow God and, to, and Abraham was able to share with them how to follow God. They have gotten worse in 430 years than when they were when God first gave them the message. Okay? And God says they have so polluted the land that he wanted them destroyed. God gets to that point often with his people. With people. They get so bad that God says it's time to remove them completely. Israel the northern kingdom had gotten so bad that God said, you're going into captivity. Okay, and they were conquered by the Assyrians and brought into captivity. Why? Because the entire time when the two tribes, when the ten tribes broke off from the two tribes after Solomon's reign, they were always into idolatry. Okay? Their king said, the king basically said, I don't want them going to Jerusalem to worship God in Jerusalem because they might decide they want to be part of the southern tribes. So he set up golden calf worship. And he set up two idols, one all the way in the north in Dan and one down in Bethel. <laughs> the house, really bad, called the house of God. He set up a golden calf there. And so he instituted golden calf worship. And golden calf worship was from the time that he set it up all the way to the time that they were taken into captivity was the primary worship that they did in, in Israel, uh, the northern kingdoms. Does that mean every single person worshiped the golden calf? No, they were still Jews, and some of them probably worshiped God. But he made it very difficult to cross into Judah to go to the temple. And then they would worship Baal and Ashtoreth and all these other idols as well. But part of golden calf worship, but we saw that when Moses came down off the mountain and they were worshiping the golden calf. And they were basically having an orgy down there. They were naked, dancing, worshiping the, worshiping the calf and doing much worse. And this is the kind of stuff that was going on in Canaan. And God says, destroy all of them. Not, don't let any man live. And he said, kill the animals. Because bestiality was part of that process, and the animals were polluted. So God said, kill, just kill everything. Anything that's living there, kill it. And he even, if you remember, told them that when they get to the land, that they can't eat of the fruit for five years after they get there. Because he wanted the fruit to be, that was growing from the land to be purified. 
Okay? God said that this was an evil place. We saw that also in Israel, of Judah, when it was conquered. It was the same thing. They'd fallen into idolatry, and God took them away. All through history, we see when people get into deep sins and rebel against God, God judges them. Greece, Rome, uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, all these empires at their end days were into deep debauchery as well as idolatry. Okay, sexual sins abounded in these, in these places. We're seeing even in our day and world, the deep sinful sexual problems that we're seeing is going to lead to the demise of countries, but it's, there's practically no country you can go to where it's not happening, which brings us back to the days of Noah when everybody did what was right in their own eyes and God had to destroy the world. It's amazing how people, when they give their sin nature free reign, work themselves down into total debauchery, theft and sexual sins and every other kind of thing that goes on. When we give in to our sinful nature and decide to do what's right in our own eyes, evil is our all imagination, we end up with a world that is in terrible shape. And we're seeing that happening even in our day and world. The whole teaching that there's no absolute truth allows you to just say, well, whatever I want to do is good then. And we're seeing more and more of that. And we, you know, our news is filled with it. People who go in, kill 10, 20 people just at random, and then shoot themselves because they have no fear of God. And they're just an animal that's trying to live out their passion. This is where our world is at this point. And God told them, destroy all the inhabitants of the land. And again, we look at that and say, what an awful, terrible thing. But that was God's judgment upon them. He judged, he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He's judged many empires and nations for their sinful behaviors. And we know that he's going to take the church out. And Satan has a strong rule for seven years without the restraining influence of the church. Do you realize how much influence the church has had in this world to restrain evil? It's amazing when you think about it. The, the church and Christianity has raised the standard of living for women, raised the standard of, for children, made them important, created orphanages, created schools, created hospitals. Take the weak and help them. And it wasn't so long ago that if you were weak and you couldn't survive, you, they, they just figured you deserved to die. And it's hard for us to think of that in, in our terms. But in the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire, the, the, all the other empires before that, if, especially for men, if you weren't strong enough to fight, then you deserved to die. Kind of like our old West in America. You know, if you weren't fast with a gun and able to fight, you, you deserved whatever happened to you, unless you were in a town big enough to have a sheriff. And even then, the sheriff couldn't be everywhere, and you couldn't just call him on the phone and say, Sheriff, uh, my... my my farm is under attack. You had to defend yourself during that time and then go to get, you know, get the sheriff. This has been the way that man has been without God. The strong survive, the weak deserve to die by their definition. Christianity comes in and says the weak deserve to be protected. We need to build them up. We need to help heal the sick. We need to take care of the children. We need to educate people. And when we look around us and we see our world returning back to pre-Christian standards, it's really not a surprise on one side, but it means that the church is not 
being as effective as it has been in the past. And our job as Christians is to evangelize, to bring revival, get people to care about these things. And we're seeing that we don't care about that. We're seeing abortion, kill, kill the children. Which state is it? I think it's South Carolina that's under attack right now because they North made... Carolina. North Carolina. No, not for the gen bath and gender. For, for abortion, they made it against the rule, against the law to have an abortion just because you don't like the gender of your child or a potential or a possibility of a disability. They're being attacked by the abortion industry saying that's, that's discriminatory. You can't stop them from doing that. This is how bad our world has gotten. You know, kill babies just because they're not wanted. The other side of the coin is when you get old and the euthanasia comes along and they say, well, you know, and their argument is, you know, you don't want to take all your kids' inheritance away. You, you should just die and before you get too sick. This is the way we're going. And now they're, they're pushing even beyond euthanasia to, well, if you're really sick and it doesn't matter how old you are, if you're really sick and there's no chance of having a, a good life, you should just end your life. These are the issues that we're facing out there, the lack of understanding that life is from God and we are created in God's image which makes us special and then the more we draw away from God the easier it is to just say there's nothing special about life there's nothing nothing that needs to be protected about life and we're seeing it we're becoming very much a, a culture of death because we're leaving the Christian morals and the sad thing is, almost every religion out there basically is, has death as its center format. The, the Muslim world, they, they even say they are a culture of death. And they say that we in the West will never beat them because they don't, they don't care about killing, they don't care about killing and we care about life. And they're right. Other, other ones where reincarnation is the key. If you don't like your life, you just want to hurry up your death so you can get to the next one. Short of suicide. You know, because your next life might be better. So again, culture of death. Christianity is very different in that it says life is precious because it is from God. And we have a God that loves us. That's the strongest thing that we have. God loves his creation. It is the only, Christianity is really the only place that says God loves you. Christianity is the one that really teaches God loves you is creation and that sets us apart because if God loves us he does just what he what he said he did he gave his son to die for us knowing that we could not please him we could not earn our salvation so he sent his son because he loves us and this is why it's so special our one of our strongest messages to the lost world is simply God loves you and if you tell people that you're going to hear a lot of people, well, God doesn't, couldn't love me. Oh, God loves you. He loves you so much, he sent Jesus to die for you. But that is not true. The Bible says there's only one thing that's unforgivable. Uh, it says literally, blasphemy the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's primary job is to convict you of sin and bring you to Jesus. The only thing that sends you to hell is rejecting Jesus Christ. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you will go to heaven. Now, if you can kill yourself, I would have other serious problems. Do you know Jesus? Are you in a relationship with Jesus? But that's not going to say, no, you're not. But it would, it would make me question their relationship with God. This is, and this is important. We've got to always remember it's Jesus and Jesus only that brings us into heaven. Nothing I do or even don't do outside of accepting him or rejecting him 
has any impact on it. Once I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, and I truly believe, and there's the key, truly believe with all of my heart and put my whole understanding and faith in him. Okay, because the Bible says the demons believe. They know who Jesus is. Matter of fact, Jesus had to keep telling them to shut up and don't speak his name because it wasn't time for them to say who he was. Okay, all through the Gospels, he was saying, don't talk, be silent. Because many of them would say, well, what do we have to do with you, you son of God? And he says, be silent, because it wasn't time for his true nature to be revealed at that time. Because if, they really, if the people really understood that he was the son of God and the Messiah, then they would have tried to crown him, and it wasn't time. He had to die first for the sins of the world. So... The demons know who he is. They believe in Jesus. They have no doubt in Jesus. They know who he is. They know exactly who he is. But that belief that they have isn't going to bring them into bending their knee and, and repenting. So for us, our belief has to be, yes, I am a sinner beyond all shadow of a doubt. And that's the easiest one of the three points to, to get people to understand. Okay, It's pretty easy to convince somebody they are a sinner. Yeah, that's that's not real hard, because you know everybody's lie. Everybody has lied. Everybody has had a lustful thought. Every everybody has used God's name in, in a lighter, vain, vain way. No matter how clean their language is, they've used God's name in a light, light way. And it can be as something simple as saying, "Oh my God," when something bad happens to you. That's using His name very lightly because you're not sitting there praying, "God, oh God, help me." We're in a bad situation. Now, that's not usually what people mean when they say, oh, God. All of this comes down to what does it take to be saved? That absolute belief that I'm a sinner. The absolute belief and understanding that I deserve punishment. And that's not too hard. Most people realize that when you do bad, you deserve punishment. It's getting harder. As people get further and further away from truth, it's getting harder for people to understand that they deserve punishment when they do wrong. Because there's a lot of parents who haven't punished their kids and are spoiled, rotten kids and don't understand discipline. We see them in the schools. We're seeing them in the employment world where they're, gonna have, where they're told to be at work on time and then they wonder why they're fired when they're 15 minutes late the first, you know, for the first three shifts they're supposed to work. And you're going, nope, you don't have a job anymore. Well, that's not right. That's not fair. And, I, and believe me, I've heard that from employees. I had employees that saying, you need to put your phone away. I'm not paying you to talk on your phone. And if I see it, you know, and after I've told them three or four times, I go, if I see your phone out again, you're terminated. Well, you can't tell me to stay off my phone. I go, well, I'm paying you. I can. This is the attitude that people have. And don't, you, nobody can tell them what to do because they've grown up in a world where people can't tell them what to do. Their parents, you know, if they spank them, get in trouble, you know, and, and the kids know this. And in schools, they're barely getting a slap on the wrist for being disruptive in school. So, I mean... All of these kids are growing up with no rules, and then they hit the, the adult world and have to struggle with rules. And it's not going to be long before rules will be practically non-existent because of people's attitudes. And there's not going to be enough people to keep businesses going. This is the way we're looking at in the near future. People being raised with no rules, hitting the workplace, and not being able to abide by the rules, and people are going to start shutting down their businesses or automating. You know, because if you can't get an employee and you have an automation as, your as an option, you're going to automate. We're seeing a lot of factories do that. They're automating everything. 
Fast food is going to be, especially if these people keep demanding 15, 20 bucks an hour to flip burgers. At a certain point, the machines have been around for almost 30 years that can do every bit of the work in the restaurant. It just, the machine cost a lot more than it was worth investing in. But if you're getting people demanding, you know, 15, 20 bucks an hour, the machine starts to become a viable option and then you just need somebody to fill the hopper and all they gotta do is go to the front, you know, punch in what they want, get it made right every time and delivered to them. We're on the cusp of the destruction of our economy and everything else. And we're living long enough to be able to see this. And it's just around the corner just around the corner that everything's going to fall apart. And we look at Revelation and we say, there it is. Everything it talks about is right there. We're on the cliff, looking over the cliff, and all we need is a little bit of a push or a little bit of a shake to, to drive everything over the edge. And then the exciting time comes. We get to wait for Jesus to rapture us out and, and watch the seven years of tribulation and return for the millennial kingdom. But the evil of that land is what was involved here. And God says it's got to be judged. It's got to be judged, and God will always judge evil eventually. And we've talked a lot about that in the Sunday night Psalms class. God is our defense, and evil always gets judged eventually. We may look around and say, God, it looks like they're getting away with everything, but the key is looks like. God is always there ready to drop the punishment. But he gives, especially the lost world, he gives them plenty of rope to hang themselves. Okay, when, the lost, when a lost individual is going to stand before God, they will not have an excuse at all for having rejected him. Because he's going to say, here's when I told you, here's when I told you, here's when I told you. And you kept rejecting me, you kept rejecting me, you keep, kept thinking you were getting away with it and rejecting me. So when they finally stand at the white throne judgment before him, the first and only question they're really going to be asked is, what did you do with my son? And here's all the opportunities you had to turn from your sin and accept him. And we want to keep that in mind. And we want to, Paul and Peter both said, examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith. And we need to do that every once in a while and say, do I truly know God? Is he in my heart and in 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 am I in a relationship with him? Because Christianity is not religion. Religion is a set of rules that I follow to appease a deity. Christianity is a relationship with the, found, the creator of the universe. And we we're in a relationship with him. And it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And he loves us and we love him because he first loved us. And he changes us by being inside of us, and he changes who we are because his very being in us changes us. And we look and say, yes, I know him. I know the God of the universe. I know Jesus. And when it's not emotions. It's not anything else. It's, it's facts. We base our entire relationship with God on facts. He has done this, and I have accepted it. He says that I'm a sinner. Christianity is also the only religion that tells you that we know exactly where you're going, going to be after you die. If you've rejected Jesus, you will be in hell. No matter how many good things you do compared to your bad things, you will be in hell. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, you will be in heaven. No matter how many bad things you do compared to your good things. Every other religion out there is based on do more good than bad to 
appease the deity. And they have a set of rules that you to follow. And the problem with all of them is you never know whether you've done enough good to outweigh what you've done bad. You know, ask any Muslim, you know, how do you get to heaven? You do more good than bad? Well, how, how much good have you done? I have no idea. You know, same thing with your, your Mormons and your Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Catholics even, because Catholics tend to believe in do more good than bad because they're not fully Christian. Now, they do also, you know, especially in First Confession, you're taught that Jesus is the only way and all of that, but most of them don't live in the First Confession. They live in everything that was piled on top of them from that point on. You know, your Muslims do more good than bad unless you, unless you die as in a suicide jihad, in, in jihad and then you're, you're supposedly guaranteed heaven. Uh, Hindus, uh, Buddhists, all of them, you have to reach attainment of your, of your place and get higher level of, of reincarnation and come back at a higher level. Uh, and you keep doing this until you come up back high enough. All of these religions are based on what you do. And Christianity is the only one out there that says, it doesn't matter what you do. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. And you know, the sad thing is that there's so many Christians out there that probably are Christians. They've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. At least they say they have. But they're living their life in a way that they think they have to do more good than bad and earn heaven somehow. And it's sad. It's sad because they're striving and they're working, working hard trying to discipline their flesh and God says, I just want to crucify your flesh and live in you and you'll, you'll be changed. And it makes it easy. We live by grace. And we have the grace of God that comes in us. And it's so important that we live in that grace and we live in the perfection of Christ. Jesus paid everything. All we have to do is rest in him. So what the book of Hebrews is mostly about, learning faith, resting God. Just resting in him and letting him guide us. Uh -huh. I mean, before, but that's kind of what he's saying to do. Be so at rest that you are able to be so peaceful that you are able just to sleep. Because he's not trying to say, get out there and strive. The law was not given to us to get us to strive to, per to please God. It was to show us that we are sinners. Because everything about it was you had to then go and offer the sacrifices, which are the picture of Jesus. Okay, the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The only true blood that removes sin is Jesus' blood. So for the Old Testament saints, they were looking, they were looking forward to Jesus' cross, uh, crucifixion. We look back to it. Now, as far as the Father was concerned, Jesus had paid the price from the very beginning. As soon as Jesus said, Yes, Father, I will pay for the men that we're going to create when they fall, I will pay for their sin. Long before he created anything, and God said, okay, son, we're going to create them, and, and you've paid the price. Okay? As soon as Jesus said, yes, I'll pay it, as far as the father was concerned, he'd already paid it. He hadn't actually died yet, but as far as the father was concerned, because he knew that his son would fulfill it, it was already done. From, from eternity's perspective, it had already been done because Jesus said he would. This is the power of the death of Jesus. It's not something that I'm having to obtain. I don't have to do works to do it. And that's uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Oh, no, that's what Titus, but according to his righteousness, he saved us. 
And Titus says, for by grace, Ephesians says, for by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay? We have too many people trying to do works so that they can say, I did something to earn my salvation. And this goes to your question about suicide and all these other different questions we have. If we are in Christ and we are living in that grace, we are saved. When we accept Jesus Christ, Jesus says we're in his hand and, his, and he's in the Father's hand. You can't get out of that grip. And there's people who will, I can choose to jump out. No, no. God's not going to let go of Jesus and Jesus isn't going to let go of you. And you, you can try to jump out, but you've made your, you've made your bed. You're, you're, you're staying there. Uh, but, you know, this all comes down to how do we please God? Only by being in a relationship with him. Jesus, when he taught the disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer, said, you pray to Jesus saying, Our Father. Okay? That is not the way the Jews pray to God. The Jews do not have a personal, intimate relationship with God for the most part. There are a handful. You got Abraham with an intimate relationship. You had Moses with an intimate relationship. You had Joseph who seemed to have an intimate Daniel, you know, there were certain people that had this intimate relationship with Jesus with God and saw him as a personal God, even in the Old Testament. And some probably that would never have been mentioned. <laughs> but it wasn't in it wasn't a common thing for him to be able to be addressed as father. And as later on they go that we can call him Abba, which is more like daddy. It's not the formal, it's not really daddy, but it's, 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 it's a very intimate. This is, this is my dad, you know, it would almost be my dad. It's, it's, it's not as formal as father, but it is very intimate. This is my dad, you know, it's, you know, and that's how we're able to address God. He's our father, he's our dad. We have an opportunity to come into his presence and for the Jew, they couldn't come into the presence of God. They could get as far as the inner court and offer their sacrifice. But only the priest could even enter into the tabernacle, and only the high priest once a year could enter into the Holy of Holies. There wasn't an intimacy with God. He is our defender. He is our protector. When we truly learn to rest in God, our spiritual walk becomes easy. It really does. It becomes much easier when we just learn to rest in him. Let him be our defender. Let, listen to what he says. Let him crucify us. Not fight against it. And, and let him be the victor, victor. And here he was. He said, drive the people on. He says, destroy all their, their pictures. And this word here is their showpieces, their figures, their carved images. It's talking about their idols that are carved. Okay? And there were a lot of carved images. Uh, Astoroth was a carved totem pole, basically, and with very exaggerated sexual organs all over the totem pole. And they would carve it, and that was, this is what he's talking about, carved images. And then he says, and destroy all their molten images, and those are the ones that are met cast metal. Okay, and that would include things like the golden calf, and, the, and uh, it would include... Uh, uh, the other images that were out there, uh, Moloch. Moloch was a cast idol, and, what, and in Moloch it had arms out, and they would build a fire inside the, the metal of strength, and they would put their babies in the arms, and then they would roll the arms back and draw the babies into the fire. And Moloch was a god of power and, 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 and wealth. And so they would offer their children to this god. And 
so he says, destroy all their molten images. And then it says, quite pluck down all their high places. And we've talked a little bit about high places. High places were those tops of hills and mountains that they would build altars to gods. Okay, And the idea was the higher up we get, the closer we are to the gods and we'll offer their sacrifices here. Uh, they, would, they would create orchards for Astaroth and, and carve living trees into these totem poles and, 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 and commit all the lewd acts that were part of Astaroth worship and Astaroth, Astaroth and Baal were both fertility gods and sexual activity was part of their worship. Okay, and he says, get rid of these high places, get rid of these trees, get rid of the molten images. And he says, do it completely. Okay, they were to leave nothing. No temptation was to be left. Because okay, remember, they've already shown that they had problems toward idols. Forty years earlier, they had the golden calf that, that Aaron made. And I always have loved Aaron's excuse when he was telling Moses, you know, uh, you know, Moses, I kinda, I, they asked me to make a god. I took all the gold, I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> now, you want to talk about one of the world's worst excuses to ever be made. That was his excuse. You know, hey, Moses, you know, I don't know how it happened, but I threw all the gold in the fire, and hey, look, at the, look what came out. You know, it didn't melt, melt, melt down into a, a sea, of, sea of liquid gold. It, it popped out as a calf. So we're seeing that they have a problem with, with idol worship from the very beginning. And if you remember, Balaam told Balak how to get them to be cursed by saying, send in the women, entice the men through, through sex and, and get them to worship the, the gods of, of Moab. And they did. And they were judged. 32,000 people died because of that worship that, that Balak taught, uh, Balaam taught Balak to, do, to trick them with. So at the beginning of their time, they had trouble with idols. And at the end of their 40 years, they're still having trouble with idols. And God says, when you get into that land, destroy every trace of every idol so that you're not tempted to go to where these idols are. Okay, And that's the whole purpose behind it. I know you have a weakness for that. Get rid of them. And we're going to find out that the people have this problem for the rest of the time that they're, that they're a nation. The book of Judges. During Joshua, it doesn't seem to, that they have much problem. Joshua is a good leader, and they're in a military campaign, so they're always active. The book of Josh, Judges, there is a full spectrum of people doing what's right in their eyes and, and worshiping idols, being judged, repenting, having another judge, starting to worship idols, being judged, repenting. And it's that same cycle through all the judges in the book. And then we see during the period of the kings, they do the same thing depending on who their king is. And they keep going through this cycle until they're, until they're sent away. And the sad thing is, for the Jews today, as they're brought back into their country, they're still doing the same thing. In Israel, we think of them as being Jews, but pretty much it has been said, the majority of Jew, Jews in, in Israel are atheist and agnostic. Okay. Atheists don't believe in God. Agnostics say there may or may not be a God, but if there is, he doesn't care about people. Okay? And the majority of their people are in that camp, that, that they got their land back. It's a miracle they got their land back, but it, and they know that, and they'll even tell you that, it's, that God gave it to them, even though they don't believe in a God. It's kind of funny. <laughs> they really don't believe that there's a God that cares for them, but God gave them the land. 
because they know their they know their history well enough to know that that's what the Jewish nation says is that God gave them the land. They don't understand all the ramifications of it, but they they are very confused. And this is the problem: how confused do we get when we're not walking with God? How how confused were we before we started walking with God? You know, we had all these little bits and pieces of things we thought were in the Bible that we thought about God, and if we don't study his word and get with his people, we stay confused and don't understand who God is and what, he, what he's done and what he wants. And we'll say really silly things, you know. Uh, you know. God helps those who help themselves. You know, there's a lot of people who believe that that is in the Bible. You know, but that statement is exactly opposite of what God says. God says, I help those who are so weak they can't help themselves. It's exactly... It's exactly opposite of what that verse says. You know, uh, and it's very important that we understand that because there's so many people, they base their whole life on this idea that God helps those who help themselves, so I've got to go out and do everything I can, and then what I do, God will bless. Usually it's exactly the other. What I do, trying to do it on my own strength, God curses and works against me because he doesn't want me standing on my own. He says, I am your God. I am your deliverer. I am your rest. I am your rescuer. And he'll work actively against us when we're trying to be independent. And it's so nice when we turn, in, turn everything over to him and he just lets things run so smooth and, and correct for us. So he says, get rid of all these idols. Don't be tempted. Destroy. And they would burn down the, these high places and they would destroy him these. Then in verse 53, and you shall depose, uh, dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein, for I have given you the land to possess it. So they were to get rid of all the people because it was their land. Verse 54, and you shall divide the land by lot for an inheritance among your families. To the more you shall give more, and to the, uh, the more inheritance, and to the fewer you shall give less inheritance. Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falls. According to the tribes of his fathers, you shall inherit. So in other words, he's giving instruction to, to Joshua. It's going to be random chance. We're just going to, we're going to cast lots, and they're going to get what God gives them. And so what they would do is each of the, each of the princes would come in, and they, you know, when it was time to divide the land, and, and each place was, okay, we're, here's the lot, we're, you know, the area that we're giving off. Okay, this belongs to Reuben. Okay, Reuben. No, it wouldn't be Reuben. Reuben had his on the other side. Uh, Benjamin. You know, and they say, okay, Benjamin, here's yours. You only have this many people. Here's your boundaries. Judah, here's your boundaries. You got a lot of people. You get a bigger, bigger, bigger plot, and then they had to go out and conquer their their inheritance. But it wasn't it wasn't Joshua saying, "Well, let's see. I really like Benjamin, so Benjamin, you're going to get the best land in the in the place." Well, I don't like you guys. You get that rocky part over there. Yeah, that wasn't how it was to be divided. And God says it's going to be divided by the casting of lots, and you start down in one spot and work your way. You know, work your way out and smaller and larger, depending on how big how big the tribe was. So that was the instruction. Again, is out of fairness. Now, it sounds kind of strange to us, but it was for fairness. You know, it wasn't I'm going to pick my favorite place and the people and give them the best land. And so, and then he says in verse 55, but. And remember, if I said when we read the word but, something is about to change. Okay, and it's something we need to pay attention. The word but or even therefore says, pay attention, something is, something's happening. The word but says something different is happening. Therefore says, if you did something, this is going to happen. Here we have the word but. But 
If you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall come to pass that those that you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. You know, you want to talk about something that sounds horrible. The, the word for pricks is literally thorns in the Hebrew. Thorns in the eyes. That sounds painful. I don't even want to think about trying to put thorns in the eyes. And he's saying, if you let these people live, they're going to be pain in your sight because they're going to keep worshiping idols. They're going to keep living not the way God wants you to. And they're going to be a thorn in your side. And if you've ever tried to walk through blackberry vine uh, uh, bush, you know, uh, or you've been out in the wilderness and the only way to go through is through a bricker, bricker a briar patch, you know, it's very painful. It can draw blood. It can draw lots of blood if you're not careful. And this is what God's saying. The ones you leave are going to be like a briar patch in your land. They're going to cause you pain. They're going to bring you down. They're going to be an irritant. And this was a promise that God says, if you don't do this, then they will be this. And then he goes, and they will vex you. Vexing somebody is pretty serious. Okay? This is where they taunt you. They make your life miserable. Just their presence makes your life miserable because they weren't dealt with. And we're going to see, and you know the story, even in Joshua's day, they didn't get rid of all of them. When Joshua was ready to die, there's still tribes that have not taken their inheritance and conquered and driven the people out. Because God said, I will not drive the people out until you enter in. He goes, but when you enter in, I will drive them out like a hornet. I will chase them out like hornets. In other words, he said, I will push them out. You won't have to fight, but you have to desire to go in. You have to desire to go and do the work. God does the same thing for us today. So often he says, I want you to do this, my church. And the church is saying, well, I don't know if we can do that. And God says, just take your steps. You know, if we learn to just start sharing the gospel with people, almost everybody is afraid to speak to people about the gospel, at least when they first start. You know, because it is... It's not normal. It's not something that's real easy to do. It's not natural to go preach the gospel to people. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And you keep doing it, and it becomes easier. Why? Because God starts filling your mouth. And you just open your mouth, and you watch God fill it. It's amazing. I hope you've all experienced this. When you start speaking to somebody about God, and there comes that point a lot of times when you kind of start listening to yourself and going, wow, this isn't me speaking anymore. No, a couple people listen. <laughs> you know, it's, not, it's, it's, it's my voice, it's my mouth, it's you know, coming from my direction, but it, you know, there's times when I go, it's not me speaking anymore, and I'm just sitting back listening to what's coming out well, of my I'm mouth. I'm working on my mother to get her to see the right way. Yep. She's the one that believes you do more good than bad, you go to heaven. Because that's the natural thing for people to think. It's matter of fact, it is what Satan wants people to think. So it's part of the world system, and it sounds good. It sounds good to our flesh. If I do more good than bad, I'll please him. Because how do you please your parents? Do you, do good, you do good, you do what they want. And unfortunately, because parents are human, they respond to just they that. They, they, they lap it up. Oh, I'm, I'm being 
you know, my, my child is being obedient. This one over here, they're disobedient. You know, you may not, you may not say you don't love them, but you definitely, I love the one that is obedient, and I have pro This is my problem child. This is the one that brings nothing but problems to me. This is the one I love. They're, they're generally pretty good. And we pick favorites by how they respond. God does not do that. He does not respond to that in that way to being good or being bad, because no matter how good we are, we're not going to be good enough. Isaiah says that all our righteousness, the best that I can do, is filthy rags as far as God's concerned. Why? Because every time I do something in the flesh, it is tainted. I do things because I want something. Even if it's nothing but God's blessing, it's still I want something. When it's done in God, I do it purely because I love and he wants it done. I hope when you've been there where you just love somebody and you're not expecting to get anything back from it. You're just reaching out and doing something because that's what you know God wants you to do. And we all have had times when that is the case when we're saved. I just do it because it's right. Not because I'm looking to receive a reward. Not because I'm trying to make somebody like me by doing right things. But because God says it is right. The last verse, moreover it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. He says, if you don't get rid of them, I will take you from the land. And that's exactly what happened to them twice, as a matter of fact. At the end of the Babylonian Empire, they were, all of the Israelites were taken out, except for the very poor, were taken out of Israel because they were disobedient from the very beginning. And 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was and the temple was destroyed, the children of Israel were scattered throughout the Roman Empire and has only just recently come back to take their homeland. And God is blessing them again, even though they don't deserve it, even though they don't believe in God in the majority of them, even though their government isn't trying to push for God, God is blessing his people. Why? Because Abraham was given an unconditional blessing. There were no conditions put on Abraham's covenant when, with God. When God made his covenant, he said, I will bless your, your children. They will be as the stars of the sky. They will be as the sand of the sand. And there was no condition of obedience or disobedience. He said, they will be blessed. And he has always blessed them. Even when he scattered them, he blessed them. And they're back in their homeland and they're being blessed because of the Abrahamic covenant that God says, I will bless them. No other reason. Because God always has a remnant. There's no such thing as everybody in a nation being bad. And on the converse side, there's no such thing as everybody in the nation being generally good. Anytime you use the words always and everyone and everybody, you're, you're speaking in a falsehood because there's no such thing as everyone. The majority of them to probably most were evil. That was just the lifestyle that they lived in. Uh, same thing in Rome and Greece when they fell. The lifestyle was so bad that most everybody was evil. As we as a country get further and further away from God, the majority of our population is becoming evil. There will never be all except when maybe the church is taken away. But even then, God says, I have a remnant of people that are following me. He sends the 144,000 Jewish believers to go out and, and preach to the world, and some will believe. There's always a remnant 
with God. They're siding with him. It's never going to be all of them are, are bad. Now, once we have the new heaven and earth, now we'll have a situation where all are good, but it's because of the gift that God has given us. And then he said, then the promise was, if you don't do this, I'm going to take you out of your land. And that did happen to them twice. So that this is the promise. God, God said, this is where you're at. This is what I want. And if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. And they didn't do it. They didn't heed the warnings. Too often they didn't heed the warnings and the, and that God gave them. God pronounced curses on them and they ignored them. We have to be careful that we don't ignore God's curses too. There's things that God wants us to do, not because it's going to make us right with him, not because it's going to get us into heaven, but just because it is right to do. That would include things like not stealing, not committing adultery, not committing fornication, not lusting after somebody. We don't do it so that we can please God. We do it because it is right. It is who he is, and it is correct. That's why we do these things, because it is who God is. And when we, when we obey him for who he is and let him change us, we will be more like him and keep the law. Not because I'm trying to, but because that's him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and just to see that you want purity amongst your children but that it is a purity that you demand that, and it needs to be focused on you. And we just thank you for that. Help us to go out and, and live correctly. We ask that you protect Gary as he drives home this tomorrow and that you will keep this church moving forward. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.